Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie. Welcome back to Open Deeply. Now, as promised, this is our episode that's all about finding meaning in our previous two bio episodes. Before we get started, I want to note that Open Deeply podcast is not a replacement for therapy or therapy. Open Deeply has some heavy emotional themes, and if anything in this episode is upsetting, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline like 800-273-TALK, which is 8255. So to get started, we decided the best way to dive deep is to simply ask each other questions. So Kate, why don't you get us started? Alrighty, great. FYI, everybody, I'm going to be quoting some Brene Brown today. So here you go. Brene Brown says, courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. But both of us had adults who blocked us from even us seeing ourselves clearly as children, let alone being able to show other people our truth. So Sunny, maybe you can recap what made you feel invisible as a child. And then my question is, what corrective experiences have you had as an adult that has helped you feel seen? And what are your continued struggles? And when I say corrective experience, for anyone who might not know, a corrective experience is when you, it's like doing a redo in life. It's an event or life change that happened later that heals injuries from the past. So what do you think, Sunny? Oh, there's so much. There is so much. And I think, you know, the, the overarching theme to this particular subject is I got to do, uh, explore, learn about whatever, all the things that were denied to me as a kid. So, you know, being biracial and knowing about that part of my heritage and that side of my family, you know, I did the DNA test. I have siblings. I have cousins. I have aunties. I have this whole huge side of this family that I was never allowed to contact, to know, tracing things back. It turns out my first cousin went to high school with my best friend. Wow. You know, and all these things were happening right underneath my nose that I didn't know. You know, also as a kid, I was discouraged from pursuing the hobbies and the interests that I liked. You know, first there was the theater and the acting, which my family was like, oh, you can't make money at that. That's ridiculous. You know, those are pie in the sky dreams. And even human sexuality, like oh, sex, you want to do something with psychology of sex? No. Mm -hmm. um, so now I get to do that. You know, I don't have those people there telling me, well, you can't do that. And those people, they're setting these expectations that I feel that I have to live up to. And even, you know, any other interest, any hobbies, any form of play or thing that's fun. As a kid, I never did after school sports. You know, my mom didn't take me to the park to go play with the other kids. I went to the park after I was old enough to walk out the door myself and take myself there. You know, um, I didn't have, 
you know, softball teams or art clubs or, or anything like that, that you, you know, like, I'm, hey, I'm driving my kids to soccer. My mom didn't do that. So now as, as a grown up, I get to do all those things. So same question for you. So what corrective experiences have you had as an adult that help you feel seen? And what are the things that you still continue to struggle with? With Alabama, you know, it's my mother gave me a lot of freedom to be myself, but it was more like the Alabama cultural norms that really shoved down who I was and my identity. I mean, there was a little bit of my mom being like, look, we're different here. You need to fly under the radar. But mostly it was the culture. And so I was slow to, you know, have self-discovery and, and figure out my true self. I think me finding myself was very much, I mean, that really happened when I came to LA. And I think LA is just a, a city that invites openness and self-discovery and kind of leaning into adventurousness. So I think it helped coming to LA and then also going to a therapy program, being around therapists who are inviting and warm, helped me start to find out who I am and open up and find my truth. So I think those are some of the things that helped me start to find my truth and feel more seen and heard. Continuing struggles. I mean, let's face it. I think some social media sites, their terms of service, there's things in the culture that are trying to shut us down from having a voice. Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be land of the free. And yet there's so many things in our culture, companies that are literally shutting us down. It's just one step away from First Amendment infringement of rights. But I think when one avenue shuts down your voice, you just have to find another one, you know, like this podcast. So I think you just have to be tenacious. And so that's the struggle. And the fight is just to keep on getting up and finding a new way to have a platform and have a voice. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's interesting that, that you bring that up because I'm thinking, you know, I'm nodding along like, oh, yeah, me too. But also, even though that's a struggle, to me, it's another opportunity to, to self-advocate and to use my voice and to be comfortable using my voice. So even though that's a detriment and a struggle, it's an opportunity to be strong and outspoken. So right. not to say I still don't want those things to go away. Like I wish those weren't obstacles, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just seeing things through rose-colored glasses. I'm in that mood today. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do think it's a thing. I mean, we never want to say thank you to our perpetrators or thank you to the people that try and take away our voice. But at the same time, it's like when we do have a struggle, there's usually some kind of growth that we can find in the struggle. So I, I agree with you. So here is a question for you. So the rules and norms that we were both taught as kids regarding race and, race and ethnicity were pretty fucked up, to be blunt. So maybe you can recap some of the challenges regarding being a, a biracial child and what are some of the challenges now as a biracial adult? And are there ways that you feel you have been able to take your power back as an adult? Oh, that's that's a complex one. And I think my situation is unique. So first of all, the biracial experience is unique. It's not necessarily the experience of a white person. It's not the experience of a monoracial black person. It's sort of a hybrid. But for me personally, the challenge was thrown in that I did not know. So as a child, I, I wish looking back, 
I knew the reasons why I was being perceived this way, reasons why, like, you know, friends' parents were kicking me out of the house and why I I was treated so horribly in in some respects and not in others. And had I known that that was about racism and and, and had the opportunity to have those discussions and had the opportunity to talk to my black family members to find out why that was happening, that would have changed everything to me. I internalized it and just thought, well, it's because I'm ugly, I'm dirty, I'm poor, I'm, you know, and I've done a lot of catching up, having confirmation, because like I said, by the time I got to middle school age, high school, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is why it's happening. But I still did one didn't have confirmation. And that confirmation is bigger than you think it is. Like once I had it, and I knew it really changed a lot. But I also didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anybody to help me seek out other people in the black community to talk to. Growing up with my family, too, who was, you know, we're not racist, but and internalizing all of those racist themes that maybe at the time I didn't think were racist, I still had to deprogram from those. And I'm still deprogramming from those, you know, as a a mixed race person who is pretty white presenting. And as I get older, my I'm losing my melanin, I'm losing my curl pattern. So as I get older, I look whiter and whiter and whiter. I still hold a ton of privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of feel like I'm the mole. Just the way my DNA came together in my body gave me this chameleon-esque appearance. And, you know, a lot of black people, they see me and they're like, of course you're black. We can see it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of white people, they're either like the deniers, like, no way, no way. Sh- you know, show me family pictures. And then they, they'll say, they'll be like, I'm not racist, but you know, we don't care if you're black. We still love you and you seem white to us. Like I've gotten that. Wow. I'm just like, oh, oh, oh my God. Okay. That's bad. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, there are some white people, they perceive me as black. And it is, it it, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck when you run into a white person that perceives you as black because I mean, I wish I could show other white people the stark difference in how you're treated when you're perceived as black. And yeah, I'm not treated that way all the time. And I'm not perceived as black all the time. But the times that I am, it's like, holy shit. I, it's like a Black Mirror episode. Wow. Like, we are in a dif- completely parallel, different existence. Um, so that, I think, gives me the... A unique perspective to be able to talk to the people on the white side of my family and the white community and to have a little bit of, of, uh, I guess, proof. Like, no, I really know what I'm talking about. But at the same time, my struggle has been balancing like I don't want to talk for monoracial black people. I don't want to talk over monoracial black people. I want to do my part to help because we're all going through a lot, you know, racially right now. But I'm still struggling to figure out exactly where my part is and to not overstep where I shouldn't be. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. So on the subject. So when I was in school getting my master's degree to be a therapist, my master's program or my master's paper was actually on this topic 
I, I interviewed a lot of folks that kind of fell into the in-between for various reasons. And they mm-hmm. talked about just that, that it, it felt like they were falling into the in-between. But it seems like certain people, I think Trevor Noah has said this, that sometimes he feels like a bridge, you know, and you, yeah. you see how Trevor Noah is a bridge between black people and white people. And I'm wondering if you ever feel that way. Absolutely. And, you know, I have served the role as like the liaison or the translator in my life in many different respects. So that role sort of comes naturally to me. And while I think that's a benefit in some respects, because sadly, a lot of white people who think, oh, I'm woke, I'm not racist, I'm not black people tell them something and they don't listen. But right. when it comes from somebody that looks like me, they're more apt to listen. So while I think in in some respects that can be a benefit as a bridge, I also don't want those people to stop there and only listen to people like me. Yeah. You know, if I can be the stepping stone, great, but I don't want to be where it stops. Um, so I struggle with that that balance. Yeah, well, hopefully people are starting to wake up and the the state of affairs where people are a little bit more awake sticks rather than starting to nap again. Absolutely. Now, you had mentioned that it took you until your 40s to have deep, intimate friendships with black and brown people. So what got in the way up until that point? When I was a kid growing up in Alabama, that was one thing. But, you know, I was always hyper aware of injustice from the time I was young. And my experience of misogyny and racism and homophobia in Alabama just felt like a big injustice wall that blocked me from speaking my mind. And I resented it, you know. But as an adult, it wasn't until 2016, you know, until that time, I was kind of like most white liberal Democrats. And I'd have to say it's almost like being in the Matrix where you're asleep. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of times it's subtle. Where you, where you say maybe to another white person, because it's usually white people talking to white people, right? Where you're like, ah, mm-hmm. I should have more friends that are black, or maybe I should date a black person. And they'll just say little subtle things like, well, you know, it's a different culture. Are you really going to have anything in common with them? You know, there's just mm-hmm. these little things that you start to wake up and they're like, no, 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 go back to sleep. <laughs> you know? Right. And and sometimes it's 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 loved ones who you you know that if you branch out that it'll cause family strife in some way, you know, and that is not an excuse. I'm just saying it's like you're already asleep. So it doesn't take much if you're it's like when you're asleep in bed and somebody, you know, and, and you hit the snooze button again, you know, yeah. it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit like that. It wasn't, you know, and I'll tell you, we have this theme of vulnerability. What changed things with me being more vulnerable, what happened Around 2015, 2016, I was, well, for quite some time, I had been doing these long posts on Facebook, kind of speaking truth from Mm -hmm. a professional lens. You know, it was part of what I did to gain awareness as a professional, but they were pretty vulnerable posts, you know, speaking about non-monogamy and kink. Not every therapist does that. And that's when Pierre, my friend, saw me. He wouldn't have saw, that connection would not have happened if not for me being vulnerable in that way. Mm-hmm. And he saw my posts. He liked them. He started talking to me. He saw something in me. He started to invest in me, as I said in my bio. And then I started to wake up. And once I yeah. woke up, 
And I, you know, kind of like in the movie, The Matrix, once you wake up and you look around, it's like, oh, fuck, I have massive catch up to do. And I have, and I will not stop. So once I woke up, there wasn't going, there wasn't any going back to sleep. And I'll have to say, I'm going to say a little theory I have. Hopefully this isn't long winded, but I've noticed that people that are hyper privileged, like really hyper privileged people, they don't have to understand their environment to succeed. But if you take somebody who doesn't have that much privilege, just even if you take, you know, like a white woman, even who has tons of privilege, but even somebody that if you're not the hyper privilege, you have to understand your environment to not survive, but you do better in life if you understand your environment. And I believe that a lot of times compassion comes after understanding your environment. And so what, I, what I've found is people would say that to me. They're like, uh, if you're friends with black and brown people, you know, they're, they're not going to understand your culture, you know. But what, what's so ironic is that I've found that black and brown people usually love psychology and sociology just as much as me. Not everybody, but I just find a lot of black and brown people that are in love with psychology and sociology just like me. And then we end up having these rich, amazing friendships that uh, honestly are harder for me to find with a lot of white people. That's the irony of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, as someone who's navigating the world as a black person, you have to be able to look into people's psychology and understand the motivations and the undercurrents that are underneath everything that maybe nobody's saying and have that that hyper, you know, superpower perception that your average, you know, middle class privileged white person never even knew they needed to have, you know, they never had a reason. Right. To develop that superpower. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. So I have the next question for you. So Sunny, you had a huge struggle in your childhood being neurodivergent, but you weren't aware of why and you didn't get any help from adults. And from my perspective, not only have you coped as an adult, but there's a ton of evidence that you have just rewired your noggin quite a bit. (laughs) I mean, they say they say what fires together wires together, meaning that certain aspects of our neurobiology are not fixed. Could you please tell us a little bit more about your struggle and how you've taken your power back or or figured everything out regarding your neurodivergence? Yeah, yeah. You know, so as a child, I had no idea that I what I have is nonverbal learning disability, which is a really horrible name because it actually means I'm hyperverbal that I rely more on things being described in words. And so my language is a crutch to me because I have a hard time sort of like people um, who are on the autistic spectrum have trouble uh, with nonverbal language, with inference for those things that aren't being said. Like I just can't. It's like, you know, I I describe to my husband who's colorblind. I say, you know, like you can't see purple. I can't see those things that aren't being said at all. Um, 
And, you know, so nonverbal learning disorder has that component. It has some executive function and focus issues like you think would be typical with someone with ADHD. And then also spatial awareness issues. So, you know, visually parsing out my environment is an issue. So that's what that is. So as a kid, I had no idea. I was diagnosed with hyperactive disorder. This is before they had the ADHD label. But my mother was a Scientologist. And she's like, you're not putting my kid on Ritalin and never addressed it again. Um, So I didn't even know about this until I was older and she told me about it. So I grew up being feeling very othered. You know, my mother didn't tell me about my ethnicity. So I was ashamed of my blackness instead of being able to have the opportunity to celebrate it and to feel beautiful. And I feel the same way about my neurodivergence. You know, now that I know and as an adult, I've realized what I what's going on with me. And the reason I found that out is my youngest daughter has it. And then it was like, that's not. And I don't want to say normal. That's not average. Oh, because that's completely my experience. Oh, shit. Okay. And looking back, I wonder if my mother had the same issues. Uh, We'll never know, you know. But even though I had all these classic signs and I didn't know, now that I'm older, I realize, like, if we know how our brain works and we can compensate for that. That's everything. You know, like you were saying, what what uh, fires together, wires together, right? So, for example, when my kids were teenagers and they would be having these emotional outbursts and, oh, my best friend said this to me, you know, stuff now as adults we'd roll our eyes at. You know, I'd say to them, this is really real to you. This feels like the end of the world to you. And let me tell you why. Let's talk about the development of your frontal lobe and where you are emotionally right now and why your brain is doing what it's doing and why, you know, how that's influencing you. And to them, even as teenagers, that was like, oh, my goodness, that explains it. Like what I'm feeling is really real. But this is why my brain is doing this. So with my neurodivergence, it was the same sort of thing. Like, okay. As an adult, I'll tell you my secret, I still have problems telling left from right because I have spatial awareness issues. I'm kinky as hell. I can't do rope bondage to save my life. (laughs) You know, why do I always wear black? People are like, you're goth. I'm like, no, because I visually don't know how to match clothes and everything black is easier. Um, And I always felt embarrassed about those things. Like, oh, why can't I do rope bondage? Why don't I understand, you know, when people are, are, when we're flirting, I don't understand flirting at all because it's nonverbal. Now that I know, I'm like, well, no shit, no big deal. This is how I cope. And and then I found, you know, why am I a good teacher? Why am I good verbally? Well, I'm hyperverbal. Now I know. And I need to understand things by seeing the patterns in things. One of the main characteristics of nonverbal learning disorder is not being able to see the big picture. And people look at me now and they're like, you're a big picture superstar. Like we were even talking the other day how one of our superpowers is we can see the big, you know, systems and themes that connect everything together. And now that I understand that that's a deficit, like when I was in school, pick the main sentence out of this paragraph. I'd be in tears. I could not tell you what the main sentence was. I couldn't tell you what the point was. Reading comprehension was horrible, even though I was verbally gifted. 
Um, but now that I know, my brain has to go through different hoops to understand the patterns and the big pictures. And now that I know that about myself, it's kind of made it a superpower. Now that I know those patterns, I can break them down into little digestible pieces and teach other people. So now that I know all of this about myself, it's it's been so helpful. You know, and I don't know how different my life would be if I had known this as a child, but, you know, overall, it's estimated somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% of the population is neurodivergent in some way, shape or form, whether it's ADHD, whether it's autism spectrum, whether it's envy, you know, whatever. And we just ignore these people in general. And even in sexuality, like this affects sexuality, it affects flirting, it affects people's ability to orgasm. I just read a study the other day that 44% of women with ADHD and 39% of men with ADHD have very much difficulty reaching orgasm. Like it takes them a longer time. Um, So if you didn't know that about yourself, you just think I'm broken. But that's not the case. And, you know, I have sensory issues and touch issues. When people touch me in a romantic way, I'm like, that tickles, stop, and I want to punch you in the face. And I have really specific ways that people can touch me. I felt like I was broken. It caused arguments with past partners. And now that I know, it's like, oh, it's just because this is the way my brain works. Let me show you how to touch me. And everybody's happy. And that's every, just knowing that is everything. And I just... It breaks my heart to know that there's so many people out there that are neurodivergent. And there's a lot about this area of study, you know, the professionals don't even know yet. Like nonverbal learning disorder is relatively new. There's just so many people who this is such a simple thing if you know what to look for and you know how to understand it. And so many people don't have that yet. And that that breaks my heart. That's fascinating. Yeah, I I would imagine a lot of the ADHD, you know, struggle to reach orgasm is that, you know, it's hard to be present. And I think a lot of orgasm, you know, the reason we reach orgasm is because we're present. So that's, that's probably a whole other thing to discuss. And just just having that little piece of information, then you can practice on like things to help you develop more mindful sex. And once you know, that's easy to practice those things. But if you don't know, you just feel lost and yeah, broken. That's what Tantra is, right? Yeah. That's fascinating. We could do like a whole, not even a whole episode. We could do a whole separate podcast just talking about it. It's, it's fascinating. And I'm an information junkie, so I could go on forever. But I want to ask you more questions. So now your bio you indicated when when you talked about what you went through that you didn't realize you weren't heterosexual until your early 30s. Hello, me too, similarities. So what blocked you from finding yourself and discovering your own sexuality and sexual orientation until that point? Sometimes a person, especially a sensitive person, they take on emotions that aren't theirs. And sometimes they take it on so much that it becomes theirs, either consciously or unconsciously. So the sexual shame that is so thick, especially in Alabama, eventually got to me. And there were things my conscious mind did not let me consider due to this culturally imposed fear. Because it certainly didn't come from my mom. Like I said, she was giving me age-appropriate sex books at age six. I had a very pretty sex-positive household considering. So 
growing up in Alabama just pushed that exploration down so far that it just wasn't something that entered my consciousness until I met Richard. And like I said, Richard is a male muse. So he immediately kind of honed in on it. He kind of picked up on it when I was telling him stories of my relationship with my college best friend, Michelle, who I'd, you know, kissed and had some experience with, experiences with. But the way I talked about that relationship had a different flavor to it than normally how you would talk about another girlfriend. He, he's like, you talk about her like she's an ex-boyfriend, you know, granted back then I was, I thought I was heterosexual and, you know, he just started to like talk to me about things and that helped me figure out my truth. It just started to help me just see something that I just never looked at or considered at all. I think because in the South, there's just this messaging that even considering it is dangerous. Right. So Sonny, your family sent the message that your identity had something, uh, was something to be hidden or even feared. And you indicated in your bio that a lot of that messaging became internalized. It became your own self-talk. You called it self-gaslighting. When it comes to sexual orientation and heteronormativity, can you talk about that struggle to own your truth a little bit more? Yeah, I mean... That was just another thing about myself that I felt was wrong. You know, think about it. I have my racial identity hidden from me. It's like, obviously, I'm different than all you people and you're telling me I'm not. I'm trying to fit into a neurotypical world. So I'm doing things like masking, which is I would see how other people act how other people respond and I would mimic and imitate because I didn't know how to act normally or and I never felt normal and I'm doing finger quotes because normal is a concept that's bullshit anyway so I, I spent my entire life doing that always pretending to be somebody I'm not because everything I was was wrong and that absolutely had you know, bled over into my sexual orientation. On top of it, my uncle, who isn't really an uncle, he's a cousin. He was my grandfather, Joseph's first cousin. And when they grew up as little boys, they grew up together. Their families lived together because it was the depression and money was tight. So hence, he grew up like a a brother to my grandfather, hence why he was Uncle George. So Uncle George has always been unapologetically gay. You know, 1940s, 50s, 60s, he was part of the first leather community that developed in Chicago. And he, you know, was his true self. And he'd come home and tell his mother, Mom, I'm gay. And she'd say, George, I don't understand what that is. I don't understand what you're saying to me. And then in the next breath, she'd say, oh, you know, that one young lady that you brought to dinner, is she your girlfriend? Are you guys thinking about getting married? And they would gaslight him, too. So I grew up with that, with like, if you are gay, it is wrong. My grandfather would get drunk and, you know, call him on the phone and, you know, say all these this homophobic stuff to him. So I grew up knowing that being gay was very wrong. So I denied those feelings. I had crushes on girls when I was little, you know, when I was in high school. But I I couldn't even fathom accepting that until, you know, like you, I was in my mid-30s and I finally came to terms with it. Like, it's okay. Once I discovered all of these pieces of myself that had always been okay, but I had hidden, that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to go out. I'm going to try this. I'm going to go out and try it and see if I like it. And I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I was right. So it was good <laughs> finally listening to my own, you know, discovering myself because I had I was never allowed to be myself and to figure out what do I like from, you know, what flavor of ice cream do I like to, you know, who do I like to have sex with? None of those decisions ever felt like my own before that point. Well, I'm glad you rebelled. I'm glad you bucked the yeah. system. <laughs> I am glad too. I'm glad too. So, all right, talking about sexual orientation, let's go to um, relationship styles. So you had an 11-year monogamous relationship followed by a 13-year non-monogamous relationship. So tell me more about who you were within the boundaries of both types of relationship models and what kind of relationship you feel for yourself right now would bring out your best self? Before I even talk about this, uh, you know, what I'm about to say is not to say that I am propping up one model. I think everybody has to decide what model works for them, whether it's monogamy, non-monogamy, or some hybrid. Yeah, but I didn't even think about anything other than monogamy until my early 30s. And it just didn't even come into my awareness to consider it. But in that 11 year monogamous relationship, you know, it just felt my perception of it was it just felt stifling and, and controlling. And in terms of my emotional growth, it was a bit of a cryogenic state. I mean, I, I get that, you know, at its best in monogamy, you sometimes feel like someone's sun, moon and stars are they're, they're everything, you know, you know, for me, I just don't feel I wasn't my best self in a monogamous relationship. I act smaller I certainly acted smaller than my 30s, and certainly I acted smaller than I do now. In my non-monogamous relationship, although it pokes at attachment injuries and your vulnerabilities, it tests your ability to set self-care boundaries. It tests your self-awareness and ability to hold the, you know, the whole chessboard of all your partners in your head. But you know, with that level of freedom comes greater self-knowledge, which leads to greater authenticity which leads to greater sense of connection. So although non-monogamy has always been harder than, than monogamy for me, if I had to choose between the two of them, I, I would choose non-monogamy. And between the two, I definitely liked myself. You know, I like myself better within a non-monogamous framework, you know, because I'm just a more adventurous, open, growth-oriented person within a non-monogamous relationship. But at this point, I'm 52, you know, and I've kind of seen it, done it. I've had a lot of experiences. So honestly, the the partner that I would choose now, um, I'm just looking for that person where I look at them and go, oh my God, I'm so proud to be with you. You are such an amazing human. You're doing such amazing things to make the world better. You know, that's the kind of person that I'm looking for. And so if a man came at me and was like, we must be monogamous, you know, or if a man came a came at me and was like, we must be non-monogamous and have swigger parties every weekend, both would land very controlling to me. You know, I, I, I think I, you know, for me, I want a partner who is just kind of feels the same way about me as I feel about them, where they're just like, wow, you're amazing. I'm so glad I found you. You're a diamond in a ginormous haystack. And I trust that we'll be whatever we want to be right now, whether it's monogamous or if we decide to do something fun like a threesome, we're non-monogamous for a while and we'll just organically be 
what we want to be. Now, please don't, you know, for the folks out there who identify as non-monogamous, I believe you. I, you know, for some people, non-monogamy is an identity. For me, I'm a little bit more fluid than that, where I can comfortably be monogamous in practice for a while and then be non-monogamous in practice and ebb and flow. So I think that is what would help me be my best self. Alrighty. So Sunny, I ask you the same question. Can you speak more about who you were within the boundaries of both relationship models and what kind of relationship model do you feel brings out your best self now? So monogamy to me was all, you know, monogamy goes hand in hand with, with patriarchy and oppression. And so it was a means of control. It meant ownership. You know, there was, uh, in heterosexual monogamous relationships, the man went into fits of jealousy. And that's been normalized in our society as romantic. Like, oh, look at how much he loves you. And, um, so yeah. And, and also it, it was used to shame you if you didn't fit into the monogamous uh, model perfectly, you were shamed by, you know, whether it's your own partners, whether it's people in your friend group or, you know, society, whatever. Um, it's just very restrictive to me. So non-monogamy, A, it, it very much gives me my autonomy whether I'm I'm actively practicing that and, you know, seeing another person or not doesn't matter. Just to know that I have that option um, releases all of those like oppressive structures in my relationship. Um, and it, it keeps me from falling into like the all too comfortable people pleaser codependent sort of vibe, which that's one of my struggles. I have to keep from doing that. I always have to actively be like, don't just lay down and show your belly and be like, oh my God, are you mad at me? Oh, can I make you dinner and rub your shoulders? I want you to love, like, I can't do that, you know? No. (laughs) So yeah, and I'm always fighting because I have that part in me that I'm always fighting. And I've also noticed I don't experience jealousy like other people do, and I'm not sure why. I don't I don't know if it's part of my neurodivergence. Like I've heard other um, neurodiverse people say that, yeah, they, they don't have like that, like ah, that knee jerk jealousy. Sure, I experience it sometimes under certain conditions, but not that it's very minor, you know, not a big deal. I'm just more kind of like, are you having fun? Great. I'm happy for you. Am I having fun? Great. I'm happy for you. Can we, you know, make our relationship agreements together so we don't violate each other's trust or, you know, prior agreements? Cool. Like, and everything's fine. To me, it's very simple. Um, And also, even though I practice polyamory, I do not identify as a polyamorous person because it implies I'm a member of that community. And and again, this is no knock on anybody who identifies as part of the polyamorous community and has found, you know, family and acceptance and happiness there. That's great. This is just my personal experience. I have found the, the poly communities that I've been uh, involved with or exposed to sort of toxic in their own right. You know, like, like you were saying, if someone came to you and was like, oh, I want to have threesomes every weekend, that's 
also controlling. Um, so I've seen that sort of vibe in, in polyamorous communities that I don't really jibe with. Um, it's also, again, in my area of the country and my personal experience, a very whitewashed scene. And to me, it's not even so much like, you know, people specific ethnicities. It's more how people wield their privilege and so, you know, it's very sort of controlling, sort of me, 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 and fuck everybody else kind of vibe that I have seen. So that's why I personally am like, I'll, I'll do my own thing and I'll, I'll be non-monogamous, but I don't really say, oh, you know, I'm part of the poly community because it's not a utopia, at least in my experience either. Yeah, I think, you know, just from talking to different people, a lot of people come to a place where they hand pick people from their community, whether they're kinky or poly or swing, you know, rather than say, I embrace the whole community because, you know, every community ha is, is flawed in some way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about, we talked about that overgiving. So, you know, we have this constant messaging in our culture that sh can shape someone, especially people socialize as women, to be overgivers, right? So women get hit by the patriarchy very hard. So what do you think shaped you to be an overgiver and you refer to yourself as a as a recovering overgiver, which I, I can jive with that too. So what's helped you in your recovery process? Well, I'll have to say, I don't think I was an overgiver in all my relationships. There's a certain type of man who brings that out in me. So I think there's been so many men like my father who, who gave me very little in the past. So when a guy swoops in and showers me with affection, attention and charm, you know, in the past, I was I was pretty suckered by that, you know, just sucked in. And when he retreated for various reasons, whether he had intimacy issues or he was depressed or whatever, I thought I could heal him with my love. Oh, yes. and uh, <laughs> uh, and although I know that my love is powerful, my for any future partner, I need him to love himself enough to do the self-work to mostly heal himself before he ever meets me. And he needs to teach himself to love others well. Most of us think love is just a feeling, but love is active. And on our deathbed, we could devote our life to learning how to love well, and we could still learn to love better three books that I like about that teach how to love well are Conscious Loving by Gay Hendricks, Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks, and All About Love by Belle Hooks. She is amazing. So I realize that a benevolent man doesn't trigger my overgiver tendencies. So then I realized that the work was to build positive affect tolerance for an evolved benevolent man most people don't know what positive affect tolerance is. It's, I could go on a huge thing about it, but it's basically being able to tolerate the yumminess of life. And sometimes we have positive affect tolerance in one area and not in others. And not others. Uh, folks with a huge trauma history tend to struggle with positive affect tolerance more. Like a person that you compliment them and the compliment feels like an itchy sweater. That's evidence that they have low positive affect tolerance when it comes to compliments. 
So for me, you know, if you fall in love with a benevolent, amazing man, if they were to die or leave you without a note like dad did, <laughs> that's a that's much that's a much bigger loss than if you were to lose a man that's just yanking you around and doesn't treat you that well. And so mm-hmm. I realized I had to build my positive affect tolerance to tolerate that kind of man that if I lost him, I'd be so heartbroken, you know? And I've done that through EMDR. I've done that through spiritual and intentional journeys. Um, and I've done that by when I run into a benevolent masculine man, uh, I will make a point to hang out with him. Like Jesse Gross, my breathwork meditation guy, you just step in and he just has this benevolent masculine energy and this healing energy. So that's part of the reasons I go to his breathwork meditations, you know? So that's some of the work that I've done to start to retrain my brain to not be an overgiver. And I realize half the work is choosing the right partners. Okay. So Sunny, same question. What do you think shaped you to be an overgiver? And as a recovering overgiver, what has helped you in the process? Oh, this is a big one. Like for me, I think this is the thing I'm, I struggle the most with. And, and, you know, recovery is a daily thing that I work on. So it's like, you know, as a kid, people would always say, oh, my goodness, even when I was a little kid, it's like you're the mom and your mom's the kid. And it's so funny. And it was cute. haha, at the time. But really, I mean, there was like the emotional incest kind of vibe where she involved me in her adult stuff when she shouldn't have and her decision making and her, you know, leaning on me emotionally. As a little kid, I would go with the, you know, seven, eight years old, I would do two weeks worth of grocery shopping by myself. I would take the car. That's things kids shouldn't be doing, you know? So I, you know, that made me an overgiver. And for my grandfather, I was his, I was always regarded as his second chance at a daughter because my mom was so much of a fuck up. And so that always kind of hung over my head. Like I had to live up to his expectations. And if I did, I was rewarded. And, you know, going through abusive situations, I felt like I could control the abuse if I, you know, overgave and lived up to those expectations. And like we said, being a woman, patriarch, all that stuff, I had zero healthy male role models. And just when I thought when I was coming into adulthood and started learning about psychology and myself, and then I became a mother where that didn't help with my autonomy because as a mother, you need to be the ultimate martyr and sacrifice everything of yourself to care for another human. So that ended up setting me back. So, you know, and I think also, just you know, my neurodiversity definitely played a role in there. That naivety, I'm not pronouncing that right. I don't care. But I saw things in very black and white. Well, like, well, if I'm good and I do my part of the giving, well, then the other person in the relationship or the situation will do their part of the giving and we'll meet halfway because that's the way life. And it never worked that way, (laughs) you know, but I was too naive to realize like people are taking advantage of you. So now I am just very you know, I'm not, I'm not doing any like all oh, this, this big, profound stuff. I just I'm hyper aware 
of my boundaries in everything that I do. Yeah, I have a job now where I'm helping people on a large scale. I am giving of myself. I give free information about sexuality and emotional development and, and things on the internet. And I, I have people coming to me asking questions. And I every day have to set those boundaries with like, this is how much I am choosing to give because I like to give it and I am in control of giving it. But this is where I'm drawing the line and I'm not going to feel guilty for it. You know, I am going to advocate for myself. And I think just practicing that every day with my, my partner, with my kids, with people I deal with on the Internet, that is how I keep, I guess, fine tuning and honing that autonomy in myself. That's awesome. It's a journey. It really is. It really is. So, all right, let's talk about. Let's talk about BDSM kink. We got to throw that in there. So as a psychotherapist, what has your journey been understanding the relationship of trauma and BDSM? So you had mentioned before that BDSM can be healing, which I agree with. So give me an example of how it's been healing for you. Well, well first off, I want to touch on the, the, the first part of just my journey as a psychotherapist. When I was in school to be a psychotherapist, I'd hear other therapists and and people training to be therapists say, you know, things like, well, if you're into BDSM, then you're just recapitulating childhood traumas, meaning unconsciously re-traumatizing yourself. I'll have to say that personally, I believe that BDSM is like an erotic modality. Whether it's a corrective experience, a neutral or re-traumatizing experience depends on the emotional intelligence, empathy, compassion, and knowledge of the people participating. And some say, if it's re-traumatizing, then it's no longer BDSM, it's abuse. And some of the time I would agree with that, but I don't think it's that cut and dry. Uh, with BDSM, unless it's simply sensation play, you're playing around with really deep psychological material. So even two people who have negotiated a scene, have a safe word, have great emotional intelligence, are still going to do misreads and have boo-boos. You know, but that's where good care and good communication skills come in and all that. I'll have to say that my experience of when it was healing, you know, you're going to laugh at me because I know you're you're like, or I regard you is is way more full tilt kinky than me. I'm kind of like baby kink. And, and this is probably the most baby kink example ever. I had a lover and I had told him he knew I had a sexual abuse history and I said to him that I'd like to play around with that. And then I thought it might be healing for me. You know, we had a safe word, all of that. Um, and this was a guy who normally kind of had puppy dog, happy energy, but when he was in the bedroom, he kind of shift into this kind of very masculine, heavier en energy. And it's not like he was the most evolved guy, but you know, people have different ego states. They slip into different energy. And on that day, when he came in, he brought his best self and it was just, we weren't even having sex. He was just over me and he pinned me with his body weight in the same way maybe perpetrators in the past had. But then when I looked at him, it was such benevolent, kind energy. So that physically it felt the same as bad experiences, but his energy was so benevolent and the focus was on me. With a perpetrator, they don't care about you, you know, and their energy is negative and they're just taking and in fact, they might be sadistic in a negative way. And with him, it was just all, he was bringing his best self. 
like his evolved masculine self. And he was there for me, even though he was mimicking something that happened in the past. It was just that simple. We weren't even having sex. And that moment felt incredibly healing for me. All right. So Sunny, can you talk about your journey a little bit more related to discovering that you're kinky? And can you explain how it's been healing for you? Yeah. You know, one of the things I mentioned uh, in in my episode before was I realized through a lot of self-discovery that I had always had kinky inklings. You know, even in my first earliest sexual fantasies as, you know, a toddler. And and looking back on that, you know, I think about like when I was 10 and I played with Barbies, it's very uncannily similar to some of my scenes now today as an adult. And when that dawned on me, I was like, I was doing these scenes with my Barbies in 1982 and had did not make the connection. That's exactly how I play out my kink today. Um, So realizing that, you know, that really is a part of me that I was born with that in itself was a healing revelation to me, you know, but as I said before, there, there are some things I'm sure that bleed their way into my kink that are a result of my traumas. And if that's the origin of some of my kinks, there's nothing wrong with that either. There is no, you know, right or wrong way to get kinky. Um, and so I look at kink, not so much as a sexual thing, um, it, it's kind of erotic, definitely emotionally intimate, but I look at it as it's a Venn diagram of three things. Eroticism, which I use that word very loosely, which necessarily isn't sexual, uh, play like pure, fun, uninhibited play and exploring trauma in a safe container. And that's what kink is to me. My kink is very mental. It's very, you know, we're going to really get deep into a role play and play out these characters. I don't really care about floggers and paddles and, and rope. My kinky tool is my brain. And that's how I play. Um, and I think being neurodivergent and, you know, th- and this is, I think, a, a benefit for neurotypical people, too. But it's a way to play with different states of being, to explore different emotional states that maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable diving into in your default world and trying them on for size to seeing what they feel like. You know, for me, because I was such a people pleaser, I never got to be dominant, aggressive, to call the shots. And I was uncomfortable doing those things because I I was always told that's not a role for me. So in kink, I got to play with being that way and to see how it felt and to try it on for size and and wrap it up in different personality styles. So then some of that actually bled into my real life, you know. And when I say I look at kink as as play, I really do. You know, I I'm a dork. I play Dungeons and Dragons. I used to play World of Warcraft, you know, on the computer. And and this is before I I really got into kink, but I played World of Warcraft and I always played a very hands-off character. I didn't want to be up in the action. I didn't want to be the one making the decisions. I was just the support, you know. And I realized I'm that in my 
real life too. I'm always hanging back. I don't want to take risks. I don't want to be too loud. I don't want to be too big. And I'm like, I think I need to do that in World of Warcraft. So I took on a character where I was a tank, which meant when the battle was going on and the big monster was there, I was the one to make the decision when to run in first. Like, ah, you know, <laughs> guns blazing. And this went against everything in my nature. It was terrifying. But playing that role in World of Warcraft actually did help me in my real life. Because I got to see what it was like to to just be a badass and to be like, fuck you, everyone. This is what we're doing. <laughs> and I do the same thing in my kink scenes. And it, it is therapeutic in that way because it helps me explore my full breadth of the emotions, the, you know, different relationship styles that I can embody in my real life. That's amazing. That That's a wonderful journey. I love that. <laughs> oh, I, I love it too. So if you're like, you know, if you're like, you know, but I think you are kind of a badass. I'm only a badass because of World of Warcraft and kink. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a journey. I mean, it's like what I was saying, what made me fall in love with being a dom was the same thing was just the creativity in it. I mean, you talked about like stepping into yes. being a badass, but it clearly the creative element sold you as well yeah absolutely absolutely so speaking of being a badass <laughs> um you you mentioned that you were you know like a tough rocker chick so talk more about your journey from being you know that tough kind of badass persona in real life to embracing your vulnerability you know when i think back on it I don't think I went from being a tough chick, like flipping that switch to being vulnerable. I think the Sherpa between those two states was was my adventurous spirit. Like, honestly, I think that whole phase in my 30s and, and part of my 40s that, you know, when I was with my husband and, and doing the swinging and like all the parties, all that adventure kind of was the Sherpa that led to my vulnerability you know, Brene, Brene Brown says vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I have to say there was an element of risk that led me to finding my true path. So perhaps thoughtful risk and adventure and a bit of rebellion from social norms are all Sherpas that led to vulnerability. You know, they required an openness to lean into the unknown. And mm -hmm. so I think I built up some strength through my adventures that led to me being able to tolerate vulnerability now. And, and I, and I'd have to say beyond that also, I think, you know, with my clients, they learn from me, but it's a two way street. I learn from them and I watch them be vulnerable every day. You can't help but learn from that. So I think those are the two things that led me to vulnerability. So, okay. So, Sunny, can you talk more about the inter intergenerational shame in your family? That's a doozy of a question, right? And how did the gender roles in your early relationship impact shame? Oh, my God. There's so much there. Okay. So, um, you know, I grew up in an environment that 
celebrated lies and covering up the truth. And, um, you know, my my grandfather's those immigrant parents that own the apartment building. They were German and they were your stereotype. Like you don't show emotion. You're weak. If you show emotion, you should never be vulnerable, like very Vulcan, logical, no emotion. And I was taught that in order to be perfect, which is always what you should strive for, you had to be in perfect emotional control at all times. And, you know, everything is or was a source of shame, you know, sex, your looks, how you present in society, you know, every other thing about being a woman, like that's a whole other thing to unpack, right? So it's like my mom had themes of shame in her life, whether it was her weight, her lack of education, or being the black sheep of the family because she was too emotional and just did what she wanted and too much of a, a free spirit. And that shaped her entire life and held her back. It literally ruined her life in, you know, in a, in a series of events, I would probably say that's what killed her. And, you know, so, and then I look at my grandfather, her father, and his, his need to control like this control that he had and the drinking that he had, you know, knowing him, I know that he had those things because he had, he was uncomfortable with his vulnerability and with his emotional truth. And he kept it bottled up and he kept it hidden and it seeped out either by like he, he, he expressed it by controlling other people or by drinking and just letting it all out in these most outrageous, hurtful toxic harmful ways you know and um i look at the demons that both of my exes had even my you know fun loving first ex he had depression you know but he he always put on a happy face and you could never see it but it it seeped out and i think that was a big part of his issues and you know my second ex of course um so i i've come to realize that you know, and I think it's Brene Brown that says vulnerability is the anecdote to shame. And shame has what's held me down, me down, my mom down, my grandfather down, my exes down, like everybody in my life down. It's shame. And if vulnerability disarms shame, that's it. That's everything. You know, right. and it's like I've realized the more we tell the truth. You know, it's like, why, why did my family keep all these lies? Why? They just built, you know, it was like a snowball makes more lies and more hurt and more lies and more hurt. And if we just disarm them with telling the truth and being vulnerable, it's like, you know, when you light off one of those fireworks and you think it's going to make this big explosion, it's just a little dud. And it's like, oh, that's it. Like we were <laughs> vulnerable and we told the truth and it actually wasn't so bad. Like, oh, we could have been doing this this whole time. Yeah. Um, so to me, vulnerability is everything. Leaning into discomfort, like being comfortable with discomfort is everything. Yes. Learning, you know, being educated, learning truths is everything. You know, that that is, you know, I don't know. People go, what's the meaning of life? I don't know if that's the meaning of life, but that's the key to being happy, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so when I hear our two bios, it becomes clear that the cultural and familial and individual shame 
was the main perpetrator in both of our narratives. And I believe that a main way that the, that the powers that be who control the masses can, can be thwarted is to break down the shame that they instill. And so here is my final Brene Brown quote. She's been our person for today. Shame cannot survive being spoken and being met with empathy. And that's why we're doing this podcast. Courageously and wisely speaking, vulnerable truth is the key. And as Public Enemy says, fight the power. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, all right. So, so thank you for joining us. We hope that you'll join us next time when we will have our first guest that we're so excited about who dares to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.